Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 207. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you would be with us once again during these Live Internet Studies, during a Bible study. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us illumination to the text, because that's going to be our primary um, source of information. Um, we're, we, we go through other um, website resources and uh, newspaper articles and YouTube video resources and other things to help enhance our Bible study. But in the end, it's your word that's going to stand the test of time. It's going to be the true anchor of that which is the the, 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 the faithful witness that you left for us. And so we ask that you would um, give us uh, a mind to, to better understand these difficult topics that we go through. Uh, be with me as a Bible teacher, um, as a Torah teacher. Um, bring to my recollection the things that I've studied this week and help me to continue to be able to, to present it to the students who are listening and watching via YouTube and to present it in a cohesive manner. Bless them, strengthen them, protect them, and continue to provide for them. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Bashim Yeshua. Omen. Thank you once again for joining me for these live internet studies. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is an hour and a half long total study. We record the show on a Saturday and then it gets uploaded into YouTube land the following Saturday. So it takes about a week for me to do all the editing. But the audio version, the the, the, the MP3 iTunes version, actually gets uploaded about 24 hours after I do the recording. So if you've got iTunes, you can find me in the in my podcast in the iTunes store um, and listen to the, uh, the audio version, the hour and a half long full study. Otherwise, you have to wait through the week as I release each kind of 20-minute video version, the shortened kind of snippets that are taken from the show. This first segment is a study given over to eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events where we're talking about end-time prophecy, future events that are down the road ahead of us. And um, we're eventually going to be um, taking a look at the book of Revelation chapter by chapter. That's really where we're going. But before we get there, we have to kind of build up the understanding of the events and the nomenclature that the book of Revelation uses by looking at um, older Old Testament prophecies and New Testament passages that are also um, lending their under, our, a better understanding of the book of Revelation. Remember, the book of Revelation is, in the, is the last book of the Bible for a reason, of a, of a full Bible, not a Jewish Bible, but a Christian Bible, for a reason. It's because it's the culmination of all that God is, has given to mankind historically, and that's it. The canon closed, and um, we should now be prepared um, for what's going to take place. But the book of Revelation assumes that we've done our homework and read through or are somewhat familiar as Bereans with the earlier prophecies that are found in the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures. So if you look on my screen right now, you'll see that I've got a list of chapters out of the Bible that build up to and that culminate in, if I scroll down to the lower right corner, the book of Revelation. You see that there? Okay. So we're working our way towards that part. This is really part, um, we're still in topic three of that outline that I had where I had like 14 different topics. Topic three, scriptural uh, uh, resources, script, uh, important scriptural um, uh, passages, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so um, we kind of took a bite out of this last week where we talked about the idea of the Bible is a book about a tale of two cities. This is my kind of um, humorous um, analogy to the Charles Dickens work that you can see on your screen, A Tale of Two Cities, or if you're a cat fan, A Tale of Two Kitties. There we go. 
Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. The word tale there turns turns into tale, T-A-I-L, not T-A-L-E. All right, Tale of Two Cities, A Tale of Two Kitties. What we're talking about is that the book of Revelation is a the consummation of this this uh, cosmic conflict between um, light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, between um, the people of God and the people of the enemy. And we know it's not a fair fight, right? It's not dualism. We're not talking about um, um, two opposing parties that are equally matched. It's an unfair fight because we know from reading through the, the entire Bible as a whole that God is the one who's ultimately all-powerful. Satan, as powerful as he is, is not all-powerful. So let's take that approach as we're reading through prophecy. We'll realize that God allows bad things to happen to his people for the purpose of refinement and judging and punishment and correction and reform to purge out that which is um, uh, wicked and um, uh, um, unrighteous in his people and to bring about um, a, um, a people that's uh, holy and prepared for him. It's not like um, we have to go through something uh, because we are, we are automatically wicked. Rather, there are those who are always going to be seen by God as righteous and prepared but at the same time, we're talking about a large group of people known as the body of Messiah. So we have to deal with things from a large perspective. When God, when we're talking about tribulation that comes upon the body of Messiah, there's a, a healthy chunk, really an unhealthy chunk, a percentage of people in the body of Messiah that are not prepared to meet Jesus. They're living um, compromised lives, or many of them are actually pretenders. They're not genuine Christians to begin with. So with that in mind, let's jump into some of the passages that we are um, going to be dealing with. The first one I want to deal with is Genesis chapter 3, where we're looking at this idea that right after, um, we looked at this last week, and I'll just re- refresh your memory, right after ma- mankind is created, right away, God witnesses uh, mankind um, participating in sin, right? The devil tricked Adam and Eve into eating from the forbidden fruit, from the tree that God said don't eat from. And so right away, God steps in and gives a prophecy about the fact that uh, Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be this um, uh, war, the conflict, enmity between uh, Satan and his offspring and the woman and her offspring, right? And of course, the Messiah is the offspring of the woman, ultimately. In fact, in the uh, Hebrew of Genesis 3.15, and when it says her descendant, it's in the, it's in the singular there, um, not her descendants, uh, I'm looking at the NASB version of your Bible here. So this was the very first prophecy that kind of details this cosmic um, conflict between light and darkness, good and bad. The 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 uh, adversary and his offspring and the woman or humans and their offspring, right? But from there, we quickly move to um, Noah and the flood, if you're reading the narrative from, the, from that perspective in the Bible. And... Um, um, what we realize that is that after God wiped out humanity and hit the reset button with the flood, that right away, if we looked at Genesis chapter 9, God told Noah and his sons, you guys need to spread out around the earth and be fruitful and multiply. But instead of doing that, we see that right away in Genesis chapter 10, that the people groups were being described as having other than godly intentions. 
what we're describing is a tale of two cities from the perspective. This is not something I, I invented on my own, by the way. I, I, I've seen other authors, Bible, biblical authors do this. But when I say a tale of two cities, we're talking about the city of, uh, the kingdom of Satan is seen through the lens of the city of Babylon, and the kingdom of God as seen through the lens of the city of Jerusalem. Those are the two cities when I say a tale of two cities. So the Bible is going to describe the kingdom of God as it comes into um, existence and power and fruition. And Jerusalem is going to take the, the preeminent spot in the Bible as that city that represents righteousness, um, messianic rule, um, uh, the law of God going forth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's that representative. Even when we get to the very end of the book in Revelation, near the very end chapters in 20s, 21, 22, etc., we realize that the new Jerusalem is the bride of God that comes down out of heaven, this jewel that comes down. It's the new Jerusalem. But either way, it still bears the name Jerusalem. By comparison and contrast, the word Babylon, when it comes to the cities and wicked cities of the earth, is this type and shadow of what we want to avoid when it comes to wickedness, idolatry, uh, darkness, kingdom of Satan, uh, kingdoms of this world that are in opposition to God, kingdoms that want to exalt man and his agenda, uh, wealth and um, idolatry and uh, uh, decadent living, right? All kinds of lasciviousness and things like that. Babylon throughout the Bible becomes this primary um, uh, symbol of wicked cities to the point that when we finally get to the book of Revelation, these two cities are used once again predominantly. We have Mystery Babylon that ends up showing up in um, chapter 17 and 18 predominantly as this, this mega city that is going to mount um, an opposition against God and his city, Jerusalem. And the two are going to be clashing, this cosmic um, clash of cities, right? Go, a dueling. So, but in order to understand the end of the book, it's necessary to rewind all the way to the beginning of the book. And so we get this type and shadow very, very early on. In Genesis chapter 10, uh, we have this idea of Cush, who's a descendant of um, uh, Ham, one of the sons of Noah. Cush fathered Nimrod, verse 8. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then we list some other uh, cities as well. Erech, Akkad, Kalnet in the land of Shinar, or you can say Shinar there. Where is the land of Shinar or Shinar? If you do a search for this through your um, Google browser, or uh, your your internet browser and, and Google Google search or whatever, or ask uh, ask any historian where is Shinar or Shinar? It's going to correspond with the area of the world that we recognize as Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq, um, somewhere around the area of Kuwait uh, and um, somewhere near the mouth of the Persian Gulf, um, where the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Uh, are located. These are where these kingdoms have their origins. Again, we call this Mesopotamia or the land of Shinar, Shinar, or um, uh, you remember Abraham came from, we're going to look at him here in a moment here too. He came from the area of known as Ur of the Chaldees. So this is the what we might call the cradle of civilization. And so what we're seeing here is as we turn to the very next chapter in the Bible here, uh, chapter 11, we have a description of what's known as the Tower of Babel. This is, again, a, a narrative um, that uh, 
kind of speaks for itself, but the overview is that man is clumping together in defiance, really, of what God said earlier, be fruitful and multiply and spread out around the earth and replenish the earth. Instead, wicked mankind is going to take it upon himself to clump together, to group together, to build a city and a name for himself and a tower that reaches into the heavens in defiance of God. And how do I know it's in defiance of God? How do I know it's just not an innocent, hey, they were just minding their own business, building a city and a tower, and then God came around, came down and messed everything up. How do I know it's not that they were just minding their own business? Well, first we just read about um, Nimrod, who's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that doesn't mean that he, that's a good thing. By the way, the, the, the scope of that phrase, a mighty hunter before the Lord, doesn't mean that he was a good guy. In fact, every commentator I've consulted, both Jewish and Christian, agree that before the Lord there means that it was in defiance in God's face, literally before the Lord. Um, in the face of God, he was this mighty hunter. It's almost like he was saying, I am mighty and strong, and I don't need your help, God. I, I don't recognize who you are. He's setting himself already against God. Um, it's at the same time that we start to read about the Tower of Babel, the Tower of, remember, Nimrod is the founder of this first, what we might call city-state, this autonomous city where it's self-governed, where it has this um, concept of we don't need anyone's help, we can run our own things. We have we still have three actual historical city-states in existence currently in 2023. If I remember off the top of my head, there's Vatican City, there's Singapore, and there's um, Monaco, I believe. Those three are, uh, you can go back and fact check me if you want, I believe those three are still considered politically as city-states, where they are self-autonomous. They, they're self-governed. They have their own currency. They have their own government. They have their own um, um, laws. Uh, even though they're geographically located inside of maybe another country, just like Vatican City is physically located on the continent of Italy, or I'm sorry, in the, in the country of Italy, Vatican City is a politically separate country, uh, city-state. It, it has its own autonomy. It has its own rulers. It has its own um uh leadership it has its own like i said um laws that that pertain to it that 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 it's self-governed and those other two examples so the tower of babel is the beginning of the mega city states that existed in the ancient times uh ancient uh athens i think was a was a, a city state babylon was another one of them um so it's not unusual that we would find a city state being built but what i'm just going to kind of tell you in advance why i'm even showing this to you it's because I believe this is the beginning of the origins of um, mankind's uh, um, desires and purposes, plans, as it were, to defy God's uh, commandments and instructions uh, in mass. Not just one individual or one evil serpent lying to our, our first parents, but we now see a group of people that given enough time and, and resource, even God himself remarks that, wow, they could get, they could get done what they're, what they set their heart to do. They could do this thing. In other words, they're a threat, not a threat to God, but a threat to righteousness and holiness and the plans that God has for mankind um, in the earth. And so God allows wickedness to grow because he has his own plans. And so we're seeing this tower of Babel, all the earth used the same language, the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of, wow, you guessed it, Shinar. Yeah, we just read about that. And they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let's make brick and fire them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. They used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves, not a name for God. Notice right away 
the people are saying, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad across the face of the earth. But wait a minute. God commanded them to be scattered across the face of the earth so they can replenish the earth. But they're defying God. They're saying, we're not going to be scattered. We don't want to go out. We want to build a name for ourselves and, and um, clump together. Uh, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which men had built. And notice God's reaction in verse 6. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all the same language. And this is what they have started to do. And because of that, now nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's God's perspective. Isn't that interesting that those words are put in the mouth of God himself? He being the one who can see the future from the present. He realizes that, you know what? They, you know, if they set their heart to it, they could actually accomplish what they're trying to do. So God decides that he's going to do something that's going to throw a monkey wrench in the whole um, situation. Verse 7, come, let us go down in there and confuse our language. Again, um, Who's the us? Yeah, that's really neat. Come, let us go down so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. In other words, God forced them to do the thing that he commanded them to do earlier. Um, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it was named Babel because there, starting verse 9, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So what are we reading here? We're reading the beginnings of these mega cities or the beginnings of the effort of humanity to defy God in a, in a collective sense, right? Um, a group of people that got together and said, um, leave us alone, God. We're going to build a name for ourselves and build a tower into heaven. And we're not going to scatter and go around the face of the earth like you commanded us to do. We are instead going to um, take matters into our own hand and decide for ourselves what we want to do. And humanity has gone in that course ever since. If you read through the pages of the Bible and watch Babylon's role in the place of humanity to where it culminates in the Babylon that we read about in the book of Revelation, right? this eschatological mystery Babylon that shows up, what we find is that Babylon takes the place as the origins of the mother of wickedness and idolatry and iniquity and... Um, uh, 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 what we might call secular humanism and just kind of this this um, symbol of man's effort to defy God and to take thing, matters into his own hands and, and unify under his own um, uh, patterns and, and resources and uh, concepts. And again, inherently, there's nothing wrong with unification. I mean, hey, hey that's great, right? If we, can, if we can all learn how to get along with one another, it'll be fine. But the point I'm trying to bring up is that uh, Satan has taken advantage of this hum humanitarian effort to unify the world in a way that defies God, that thumbs its nose at God's ways, that says no to God's righteousness and holiness and to God's Messiah, and ultimately rears its head up and says, um, we're going to um, um, uh, show you how unification takes place in our own way. We're not going to do it God's way, right? Unified under God and his Messiah. We're going to be unified under different ways. And we're going to just allow our ways to have uh, preeminence. And so we're seeing a, um, a perspective where the world is turning more and more towards a one world kind of religion, one world government, one world monetary system, one world commerce where the mark of the beast eventually will regulate who can buy and sell, where the Antichrist will regulate 
uh, who and what you can worship as God, etc., etc. Uh, Babylon takes a preeminent spot as a kind of the great mega city of the world. The great city is how it's described in the book of Revelation. Um, so we're, we're working towards that um, time period rapidly on, on, in, in, in the earth today. We're moving towards a kind of a unification of systems, uh, which on the one hand, seems to be benign, seems to be harmless, right? Why wouldn't you want to unite and harmonize with other people groups and other religions and other ideologies? Why wouldn't you want peace and equality and things like that? Ah, but that's the lie. On the surface, it looks like peace and, e and equality and unification and everyone's just getting along. But underneath, the roots of this whole system is wicked because it's actually going to serve the Antichrist and his needs, and Satan and his agenda is going to actually rise to the top and unify the world in a way that is in defiance of God and God's Messiah. That's why we need to be aware of end-time events that are happening all around us that are that are um, taking place before our very eyes. So that's where we're kind of going in our study. We're seeing that very early on in the Bible, um, Satan kind of took hold of this engine of um of of kind of um one world uh religion one world speech remember they all spoke the same language at that time so satan could unify them in that manner and god confused the language so they couldn't even uh get their city and their tower built um let's continue to uh push through some of these passages genesis chapter 12 right the very next chapter over we now begin to read now the lord said to abram who's abram Go from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where is Abraham going from, and where is he going to? If you've read your Bible carefully, you'll actually find out that Abraham actually origin originated in the same place that the Tower of Babel, in that part of the world, over on the um, in the Mesopotamian area, the land of Sh uh, Shinar, all over again, uh, Iraq. Uh, you know, Ur of the Chaldees is in that part of the world. Um, but God said, I want to call you out of that area and I'm going to send you to some place that represents my righteousness, where I'm going to place my name and where my laws are going to go forth. So Abraham very early on is, becomes the origin of Jerusalem, right? He's the, he's the, um, beginnings of a people that God's going to call out and make a name for himself, right? Israel. And within that people, He's going to give them a land there in the land of Canaan, and God's going to give them a city, Jerusalem. So Abraham is the beginnings of that. So the reason I'm reading these um, passages back to back is so that we can see that even though Satan has his one world system, his, his world governments, he's going to be controlling down through history. And when we get to the book of Daniel, this will be very, very important for us as we um, begin to identify these different wicked systems or different kingdoms that Satan has usurped and um, utilized as tools to challenge God, uh, we have to remember all the while that Jerusalem and uh, the people of Israel are always going to represent the people of God and the city of God. And Abraham is the father of that beginning. So that that's why God's saying, get out, get out, get away from your father's house. In other words, go out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that passage here in Genesis 12 
packed with so much meaning, right? The gospel's right there about blessing you. We know that the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of Abraham, from the lineage of Israel, from the Jewish people, right? From the tribe of Judah specifically. So this is, again, the two cities that we're seeing being at their very early stages being um, uh, crafted for us by the language of the Bible. On the one hand, on the wicked side, on the dark side of this discussion, we've got Babylon and Babel, Babylonia, the Babylonian system, the origins of, of Nimrod's Babylon and the origins of evil um, and a wicked man-driven system that opposes God and God's ways and will continue to do so down through history until the, the end of time. And then on the other hand, on the, on the light side of the discussion uh, of our table, we've got uh, Abraham, the father of both Jews and Gentiles who are faithful, the father of the people of Israel, the father of a people who are going to bring the Messiah into the world, uh, the people who are going to um, dwell in a land called Israel, and a city called Jerusalem where there will be a temple of God where he'll take up his residency in the Holy of Holies, right? So all that is righteous and holy in the world is going to be concentrated in that part of the world, and Babylon is going to represent all of the darkness and the wickedness. Indeed, we can actually trace um, wicked uh, religions to this area of the world in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, um, the cradle of um, false religious systems, um, as they spread around the world and, and um, take their false ideologies and, and belief systems and things like that. So that's that's kind of where we're, what we're working from. This will give us a better appreciation for the prophecies that we're going to be looking at when we start looking at Israel's history and she gets judged for disobeying God and having um, uh, getting involved in idolatry, right? Getting involved in Satan's system. God has to reach down and punish her. And at the same time, we're also going to see when we read through the book of Revelation that the devil's going to begin amassing armies and, and leaders and world kings and kingdoms together to challenge God in one final effort to destroy God's kingdom and um, prevent his Messiah from setting up his, uh, the kingdom on earth. Let's turn now to Deuteronomy 4. By this point in time, Israel is already a people group. You can see we're progressing rapidly as we're moving through the uh, the verses in, in, that I've uh, uh, put together for us. In Deuteronomy 4, we have Moses predicting to the people or forewarning them that, in a, in a nutshell, God will bless you if you are obedient and faithful and have faith in him and walk in his ways. And the opposite is true, the reverse, the converse is true. If you... Um, break faith with God, break covenant keeping with God, break covenant faithfulness with God, and turn to the ways of the wickedness around you, right? The devil in all of his ways. If you if you fall prey to that, then the Lord will uh, issue punishment. But notice the language, starting in verse 25, when your father of chapter 4, when your father, when you father children and have grandchildren, you grow old in the land, and you act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, to provoke him to anger. Notice then what is the result, right? Moses, Moshe is setting up a scenario where Israel is going to be in the land in the future, right? Moses is long dead and gone. But in the future, Israel is going to find themselves in the land and they're going to be surrounded by the possibility of idol worship and disobedience to God, right? The possibility is always there, right? The, the threat of idolatry and the opportunity to sin is always before us. 
Even as believers, right? We live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Israel is called to be different, separate from the world, to live a sanctified way, to showcase God's ways, to be a representative of God in the earth by demonstrating what it means to be a righteous people and to walk in God's ways, right? They're, they're, they're chosen for that reason, to be a, the ambassadors um, of God's kingdom. Not that God doesn't love any of the other people groups. Rather, Israel was chosen to be a type and shadow of a of an ambassador, of a of an apostle, of of a disciple, of a messenger, of um, a butler serving God and uh, serving the rest of the world around them and showcasing God's um, uh, righteousness. Kind of the kind of like the Great Commission, but way back in Deuteronomy. In fact, I I I when I read through Deuteronomy chapter four, I like to think of it almost like the the Jewish Great Commission. If you read earlier up in the chapter, you'll find what I'm talking about, where God told Israel to live in such a way so that their light would shine to the rest of the world, so that the peoples around them would be attracted to the uh, the, the the walk of Torah that they were supposed to be walking in, the lifestyle that they would be living, which is a the lifestyle that God modeled for them in the pages of the Torah. And yet Israel is going to find themselves failing to do this. And so Moses is predicting this right in advance. This is going to happen to you. I call heaven and earth as witness against you, picking up the reading in verse 26, today that you will certainly perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to take possession of it. You will not live long on it, but you will be utterly destroyed. What's Moses predicting? If you turn from God and his ways, if you spurn God's judgments and righteous um, commandments, if you break faith with God and covenant faithfulness with God, for his part, God will do this to you. So it's a result, a consequence, the result of consequences of your disobedience, your idolatry, your wickedness, your fornication, your playing the harlot, et cetera, et cetera. Right? This is what's going to happen to you. God's not going to sit by idly and wink his head, uh, nod his, uh, turn a blind eye and go, oh, well, well, my children are just up to no good again, but I love them and I'm going to keep continuing to bless them. No, no. God does not bless wickedness, right? So the Lord will punish you. You get kicked out of the land and then all kinds of bad things are going to follow. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve God's the work of human hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell anything. But from there, notice Moses is predicting, of course, it's the spirit of God in Moses saying these things. Moses is predicting that even in exile, Israel, from the lands of exile, God will not have given up on you yet. God can put it in your heart to seek after him. And indeed, you have this responsibility to continue to repent and turn from your wickedness and to seek God. What does Moses say in verse 29? But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him. Right. God can still be found with all your heart, with all your soul. So God is patiently waiting for you to get your act together even in the timeout place where you'll be, even in the exiled lands that you will find yourselves. Verse 30, when you are in distress and all these things happen to you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Verse 31, for the Lord your God, this is a very important verse, listen. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not abandon you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your forefathers, with your forefathers, I'm sorry, with your fathers, which he swore to them. Why is verse 31 so important? Deuteronomy 4, 31. Why am I singling this out? Because as we begin to read through the prophecies that we're going to do so here in the heavy hitters like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jer uh, Zechariah, uh, Micah, things like that, Daniel, what we're going to find is that over and over again, Israel finds herself in timeout. Over and over again, she finds herself playing the harlot, 
uh, being uh, being idol worshippers, participating in the idol worship of the of the um, countries around her, the, the nations around her. She becomes disobedient to God's way. She doesn't walk in His Torah the way she should. She um, uh, forsakes faith in God, and God sends her into exile. Ultimately, she gets sent into exile. We're going to see that. We're going to see this hopefully tonight, if we still have time. And what happens? God is telling them in advance that I have to punish you because I'm not just a God of love and grace and compassion, but I'm also a God of justice. I'm a God of righteousness. I can't just turn a blind eye to wickedness. I have to punish wickedness. And so God, for his part, puts Israel in these difficult situations. He tests them. He tries them. He punishes them because they're his people. But more important than that, God is a God of compassion. And so he tells us in verse 31 that he will not abandon you nor destroy you. And the reason this is important from my understanding is that very early on in the book of Deuteronomy, you find that no matter how wicked Israel gets, God has determined in advance that he will keep his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob way back in the book of Genesis. And because of that, even though Israel looks like she's going to be ultimately wiped off the face of the earth, she doesn't. God always spares himself a remnant of, of people within the larger group of disobedient people. And it's this remnant that God works with, woos back to himself, and has pours out his compassion and grace on his forgiveness and draws him to himself and, and continues the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long ago. So even though Israel gets to the point where she's eating her own children because she's starving because of um, being um, uh, uh, put in a place where she can't even get food, She's eating her own kids. I mean, that's just, that's, that's abhorrent. I mean, that's just disgusting. Nevertheless, God says over and over again, and we'll see this in the prophets, nevertheless, there is a glorious future awaiting you, Israel, because I myself, God, am going to retain a remnant. There will be a faithful uh, slice of people that will remain that I myself will preserve, and I will pour out my compassion upon them and continue my, my covenant faithfulness that I made to the fathers through this remnant. Indeed, Paul picks up on this in Romans 11. We'll see later on. Maybe if we get to it tonight, that would be great. So why is this important again? Because by comparison, the wicked nations around Israel that also participate not just in idolatry and um, tempt Israel to go astray with their wickedness and their iniquity and their, their harlotries and their their um, uh, um, just you know, all-purpose um, uh, wickedness of humanity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what we also find is that when the prophets foretell of the um, destructions of these wicked cities that are around Israel— for their participation in uh, punish uh, in um, exiling Israel and and things like that and besieging Jerusalem, we don't find any promises of rebuilding these cities. So when it comes to Babylon, right, we're working from this tale of two cities idea. When we get to the end of the end of the books or the prophets working towards the end of the book, Revelation, we don't find any promises that Babylon is going to be rebuilt. We do find promises that Babylon will be destroyed. But we don't find any promises that God would not abandon Babylon or not destroy you or forget the covenant that he had with that Babylon or something. Why? Because there isn't any covenant with Babylon that God makes. He only makes the covenant with Jerusalem. So no matter how you um, slice and dice your end-time prophecy, your eschatology, and um, your view of biblical end-time events, 
if you're holding to a view that sees Israel being taken out of the picture, then you're wrong because you're fighting against God's plans, right? If your dispensationalism or your replacement theology says there's no place for Israel at the end, then you've got an incorrect view of end time prophecy. And that's going to go a long way towards helping us understand who Mystery Babylon is when we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Let's keep going in Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, not in Deuteronomy. And, um, in our look through passages out of the Bible that talk about these these two systems, good uh, righteousness and, and and wickedness clashing with one another. In Psalm 95, uh, we have uh, the psalmist writing a praise to the Lord and warning against unbelief. And this again is going to start. We're going to start working from this idea that God is warning Israel in advance: Don't break faith with me. Don't break. Um, obedience with me, right? If you want to be blessed, do things my way. But if you do not do things my way, then I, as a covenant-keeping God, will bring calamity your way. I'll bring tribulation your way. We're, we're working toward this theme of the idea that from an end-time perspective, if you name the name of God, if you are identified as God's own righteous people, whether you're Jewish or Christian, right? Whether you're part of the physical line of Abraham or the spiritual line of Abraham as a Christian, then God, for his part, will covenantally protect you and bless you and uh, keep faith with you. But if you break faith with God, God will send punishment. Indeed, for those who are watered down in their faith, for those who are complacent, for those who are um, lackadaisical, excuse me, for those who are um, backsliding in their faith, for those who are compromising in the ways of God, God has warnings for you. And let's begin to read these warnings that firstly apply to Israel in the natural sense as, as the people of God. But in a spiritual sense, they apply to anyone who names the name of God, meaning if you're a Christian today and you're reading through, like we're going to read Psalm 95 here, parts of it, then this applies to you if you name the name of God and you believe that Jesus is your Messiah. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments. Right? Christians can say these words just like faithful Jews can. For the Lord is a great God, a king of a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Verse 5. Verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Does this apply to Jewish people, faithful Jewish people, those who are covenant-keeping and keeping his commandments? Yes, you bet. Does this apply to genuine Christians who name the name of Yeshua as their Lord? Absolutely. That's why I'm reading this passage. Uh, notice uh, uh, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. What's the psalmist referencing he's reminding the jewish people here of a time when they grumbled against god and they hardened their hearts and god had to judge that generation and we can remember that that was the generation of people whose bones dropped in the desert and they did not go into the promised land indeed as the psalmist says uh, when your fathers put me to the test, they tested me, though they had seen my work. The work that he's referring there to is the, um, the exodus from Egypt. They saw my work for 40 years. I was disgusted with that generation. So God's reminding the current generation here in the Psalms of a previous wicked generation. And they, and uh, for that, I was discussed with that generation and, and said they are a people who err in their heart. 
watch this, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, watch God's reaction. I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest. What's the rest that's being spoken of here? It was the promised land, the promised land of Israel. The whole generation that grumbled against God, that wandered in the Israel, wandered in the desert for 40 years that the psalmist describes, they died before they saw the promised land. Isn't that a shame? God took them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with a strong uh, arm of deliverance, with wonders, signs and wonders, and you know, judged Egypt, judged the Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, and brought the people through the Red Sea, only to have the people grumble against God, even after God gave him his precious ten words and uh, you know, demonstrated his, his, his faithfulness through Moshe, etc., etc., and fed them with man in the desert and, and all these signs and miracles, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. God protected them supernaturally. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. God gave them food. God provided for them, gave them water from the rock, etc., etc. And yet they grumbled against God. And so God said, you know what? You're going to drop in the desert. You're not even going to go into the promised land. And so a whole generation perished. The lesson here given for us, preserved for us by the psalmist in, book, in Psalm 95, which is picked up again in the book of Hebrews, the lesson for us is that if we stay faithful to God in his ways and don't break faith with him and break covenant keeping with him, then God will protect us and preserve us and carry us into the promises that he has for us. Remember, it was Joshua and Caleb that went into the promised land, but the rest of the people of that generation, they perished in the desert and didn't receive the promises. The, the promised land in the Bible is a type and shadow of heaven itself. It's the promise that ultimately God will bring us into that which he promised to give us if we stay faithful to him and allow him to bless us and to strengthen us. But the reverse is true. If we break faith with God, we break covenant keeping with God, then God for his part will say, I'm going to keep you out of the land of promise. Or in this case, you will forfeit your right to go into heaven because you have broken faith with me. And this is the lesson that carries over into the book of Revelation and into our eschatological study as we're going to be reading through the end time prophecies. The time of testing that's coming upon everyone on the earth is as a church, are you going to stay faithful to me? If you stay faithful to me, God says, I will preserve you through the midst of tribulation and trials and testing that's coming upon the whole earth and all of this wickedness. And I'll indeed take you to be with myself, take you to be unto myself, right? I will be your God and you'll be my people and you will indeed make it to heaven. But if you break faith with me, Indeed, you prove that you never were faithful to begin with, is what we really mean when we say break faith. You show and demonstrate that you never really had a, a genuine faith in God. Then I, for my part, God says, will allow you the testing and the trial to come and to demonstrate that you are not part of the true people. You are actually a tear. You're a counterfeit. You're... Um, you are part of the um, uh, kingdom of darkness. You never really belong to the kingdom of light. You're not part of my people. And so you will be separated out from my people, and I'll preserve my people, but you, you're a charlatan, you will perish, just like those children of Israel perished. They didn't enter God's rest, like the psalmist talks about here. So that's the cosmic picture that we're seeing described as early as, like I said, we looked at Deuteronomy, now we're in the book of Psalms already. Um, we didn't look at this uh, uh, in in particular, but as I'm drawing uh, the, my study uh, down, winding it down a little bit in these last 15 minutes, in the book of Exodus, if you notice when we pull up my list of scriptures, the entire book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15, and then Leviticus 26, I skipped over those because when we get 
uh, to looking at a closer look at different Rapture views. There's a Rapture view known as the Greater Exodus that's um, popular among many Messianic groups. That's going to bring in those Exodus and Leviticus passages a little bit more carefully. But for now, uh, I'm not going to um, talk about that. Just know that it's uh, it's coming down the road. All right, let's keep going in our 15 minutes here that we have left. In Isaiah chapter 1, we get our first real up-close and personal look at Israel's disobedience before their holy God. God has warned them over and over again. Isaiah is a premier prophet. He warned them prior to the exile um, that uh, punishment was coming if they didn't change their ways. And very earlier on the book, we begin to, we're going to begin to read about this. Keep in mind that from a historical point of view, and I'll put a little graphic on the screen to show this in post-production, that it, the people of God have already suffered uh, uh, exile under the hands of the Assyrians. Uh, Israel had, uh, had begun, Israel was now living in a condition where she was a divided kingdom um, from north and south. And the tribes were broken along lines of 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes, or really three because of Benjamin, Judah, and Levi. But so the, the, there were a, a, a larger group of tribes of Israel in the north, and they called themselves Israel. And there was a smaller group of the Jewish people or tribes of Israel that were in the south, and they called themselves Judah. So we had Israel and Judah, and it was a divided kingdom at this point in time. And Israel in the north, um, in the north part of Israel, when I say north, I mean, it, they're all in the land of Israel, but they are divided along the lines of um, kind of like Judah and Israel and, and Levi were Jerusalem and lower, Jerusalem and southern, and um, uh, and uh, closer to, to Jerusalem itself. And then the northern tribes were, as you can hear in the name, more in the northern parts of Israel. The reason this is important is because at this point in time, around the year 722 B.C., uh, God, for his part, allowed uh, Syria to swoop down and to carry off the northern tribes of Israel into captivity in around 722. And this was punishment. This was punishment because God warned them in advance, if you keep playing the uh, the harlot, if you keep uh, dabbling in idolatry, if you keep um, being disobedient to me and um, uh, practicing wickedness and and all of this manner of... Uh, of, of um, unrighteousness, then I will punish you. I'll, ex, ex, I'll um, exile you out of land. And remember, we read about that way back earlier in um, Deuteronomy. It also showed up in Leviticus as well. So uh, this was foretold. Now we have the southern kingdoms of Judah, and Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdoms. And notice right out of the gate what, what Isaiah has to say. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, right, the southern kingdoms, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, right? Four kings. Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's, manger, its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When he says Israel, here he's talking about, um, he's, he, he goes back and forth by using the word Israel as a synonym for Judah, in that sense, he's not talking about the northern kingdoms because they've already been exiled to uh, Babylon. I'm sorry, exiled to Assyria. We're talking now closer to the 500s, where we're going to soon see the exile of the of um, of um, the people of Judah as Babylon swoops down. Verse four: O sinful nation, people weighed down with guilt, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. This is God's thoughts. 
They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Verse 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in rebellion? The head is sick. The entire head is sick. The heart is faint. The entire heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing healthy in it, only bruises, slashes, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened to the oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. As for your fields, strangers are devouring them in front of you. Its desolation is overthrown by strangers. He's talking about the Babylonians, by the way. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a city under watch. If Now watch this. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, remember what I talked about? The remnant, right? This is a theme that's going to be picked up by Paul and the writer to the book of Hebrews as well. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and be like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Those cities, wicked cities, were completely overthrown. There were no survivors except for Lot, basically, right? Lot and his two daughters, well, his wife and two daughters, and then his wife turned into a pillar of salt because she turned around and looked when God said, don't look. But the point is, basically, the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah is a type and shadow of what God will do to wicked cities who don't turn and repent. The entire cities were overthrown, and they've been left to um, ruin down to this very day. But here in the book of Isaiah, God is telling the prophet to tell Israel. Remember, Isaiah actually prophesied prior. He's pre-exilic. Um, maybe even some of his prophecies were during the exile, uh, but um, most of them aren't post-exilic per se. But the reason that's important is because God's warning them in advance. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our Lord, of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Notice how God uses these um, titles of a wicked cities, and he applies them to Israel and to Judah. He's talking to Israel and Judah as people when he says, you people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying that you guys are acting in your wickedness like Sodom and Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fattened calves. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this of you? Uh, the trampling of my courtyards. Wait a minute. Aren't these God's commandments that they were doing? Yes, but in their wickedness, God's saying, I'm rejecting this. I'm rejecting this because your hearts aren't right. Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of assembly. I cannot endure wrongdoing and in the, of the festive assembly. Look at verse 14. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm tired of bearing them. That's, that's interesting that in their wickedness, they were still trying to practice some semblance or a shell of religiosity, right? On the outside, they looked like they were religious. They were still keeping the festivals and the Sabbaths and bringing sacrifices. But really, in their hearts, they were full of wickedness. They were desiring after idolatry, playing the harlot. They were serving the, the gods of the surrounding nations. They were cruel and unjust to the people in their own country. They were practicing um, injustice in their court systems and, and things like that. You know, they weren't caring for the widows and the orphaned. And so God, for his part, was saying this wickedness has come to a head and therefore I'm going to exile and I'm going to bring Babylon, a people who are not even called by name. They're going to just be an instrument to me, right? The Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he'll be my instrument of righteousness. And he's going to punish you, wicked Israel. And so God says, I hate your new moons and festivals and your appointed feasts. This is, this is really scary, people. When you think about that, this is God talking to his own people. Um, so when you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayers, I will not be listening. Your hands are covered with blood. 
right? Israel had degenerated and debased themselves and sunk to the absolute low of to the place where God's saying, go ahead and offer up your prayers. Go ahead and pray to me. I'm not going to listen to you, right? What is God's message to Israel in the midst of all this wickedness? Wash yourself, verse 16. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plea the widow's case. Come now, let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool, which is white. If you are, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 19 and 20 is the same choice that is before us as a people of God down through history. As we enter into these last days and these times during which um, wickedness is going to ramp up, um, uh, evil is going to increase in the world, and Satan's going to uh, ramp up his agenda against um, God's ways and God's words and God's people, and persecution is ultimately going to be coming down the road for you if you name the name of God and the name of Messiah and try to be faithful to God. God's warnings are the same over and over again. As his people, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land, i.e., you will be blessed, you'll be protected, ultimately you'll go in to meet the Lord of glory and you'll, you'll inherit the promises that God has for you. But if you prove yourself to be not a child of God, if you refuse and rebel, meaning you show that you never were really God's chosen, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The time of trial and testing that's going to be coming on the world that we're going to be reading about in the book of Revelation and end time prophecies and things like that, the great tribulation, the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan, things like that. Um, these are times that are meant to help the people of God know who they truly are. Some of us don't know in the Messiah, as I'm winding down my study night. Um, there are people who are playing uh, church, but they don't know whether they truly are a genuine believer or not. They've not made up their decision, but they, they're deceived in the sense that they think that just belonging to the group of righteous people is enough to be counted as righteous. So they're deceived in that sense when I say they don't know. Um, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus if you're going to make it through the wickedness that's supposed to come upon planet Earth in the last and final days. You've got to have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Messiah, Yeshua, under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you're going to make it. You can't play church. You can't play. You can't play the part. You have to be genuine. You have to be a real, genuine child of God. Israel was in that same predicament back in the uh, 500s of the BC that we're reading about here, back in the fifth uh, and sixth centuries BC that we're going to be reading about through these prophecies. We're centering primarily on the Babylonian exile rather than the Assyrian exile of of Judah of of Israel. The reason we're doing that is because the Babylonian exile was performed by Babylonia, the arch nemesis of Jerusalem, the people of God, these tale of two cities that I've been talking about. Um, Babylon was the very first pagan nation to sack Jerusalem ever, right? This was shocking to the people of Israel. Even the Assyrians didn't sack Jerusalem. They came very close within, I think, like 20 years of, of sacking them, or 20 days or something like that. It was, it was very, very close. Uh, they besieged Jerusalem, if I remember, but they, they only in, succeeded in carting off all the people. Their, their efforts of actually sacking Jerusalem and the temple were thwarted. I think there's a, there's a 20 either, I, I don't think it's years, I think it was 20 um, days 
or it's 20 months or 20 weeks, but it was very, very close uh, that they came to uh, sacking Jerusalem, burning Jerusalem, and sacking the temple. They, they didn't succeed. But a, a mere less than 200 years later, right from the 722 era of the Assyrian exile to the 586 era of the Babylonian exile, um, Babylon succeeded in doing what Assyria and what no other world power of that day actually could do, and they actually besieged Jerusalem, they took Jerusalem captive, and they burned the temple, right? That was something that never happened before. Ancient Egypt didn't do it uh, because there wasn't a, a Jerusalem to begin with, but Assyria didn't do it, but Babylon succeeded in doing it. So they're the beginning. They're kind of like the, the arch nemesis. But this isn't even Nimrod's Babylon in closing, as I'm drawing my study to a close. This was actually Neo-Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, in the five and six hundreds, right? BCE. Men, remember Nimrod's Babylon way back in the book of Genesis. That's way, that's like 14, 14th century BCE or something like that, 15th century. That's that's you know, that's very, very original Babylon. Um, that's that's like old school Babylon, right? Uh, OG Babylon, if you want to call it that. These rapper terminology. That's OG Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, the one that that we're going to be reading about in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and such. This is Neo-Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar's um, uh, Babylon. All right. So what we're going to do is I'm going to draw our study to a close tonight. Um, again, uh, uh, closing with the language of Isaiah in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become waste matter. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. They do not obtain justice for the orphan, nor does the widow, widow's case come before them. So Israel, uh, let me just back up. We're going to close with this theme um, or this, uh, this thought. Israel is described as a prostitute, a harlot, um, one who is unfaithful to God, her husband. And so this theme is going to help us to begin to appreciate the language that shows up in the book of Revelation when God describes Mystery Babylon. She's the mother of harlots. Is this Jerusalem that he's talking about in, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18? Is Jerusalem, eschatological Jerusalem, end-time Jerusalem, is she the mother of harlots that has become this tool in the hands of the Antichrist to um, allow wickedness and, and, and idolatry to spread around the world? Or is it another city? Is it Vatican City, right, and the Catholic Church or something like that? Is it, um, is it Rome, right? Are they Mystery Babylon? Maybe it's um, maybe it's a rebuilt Babylon itself, right? And why would that matter to us? These are questions we're going to be getting to kind of work our way towards, but we have to go through the Old Testament prophecies to get a better appreciation for that. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, tour teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. 
I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to um, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Uh, to biblical, yeah, to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. And for the next 30 minutes or thereabouts, let's remember uh, the topic that we're talking about. I've got on my screen pulled up a biblicalunitarian.com website. Biblicalunitarian.com is a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This web resource exists to uh, teach a perspective of God and Messiah that is different from Trinity. They believe that God is the one true God and that He exists as a unity. He's numerically one and there's only one person. There are no three persons of God. Jesus is not a God in the person sense. He is um, exalted by God, but he's a mere man. Um, or if you take the position like the um, Jehovah's Witnesses do, uh, Jesus is the first cre creature created by God in uh, a long, long, long time. I call this Star Wars theology. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, God created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else, including uh, the earth and the universe and all humans. And therefore, we don't worship Jesus as God. He's a, he's an exalted creature. He's the first creature that God created. But as far as I can ascertain, biblical Unitarian doesn't isn't like Jehovah's Witnesses. They hold to the idea that Jesus is just a mere man who was brought into um, history at the birth of through the birth of uh, when Mary birthed him and brought him into the world. So we've been looking at different passages that are primarily Trinitarian facing passages, but the biblical Unitarianism has wrested those away from the Trinitarian believer and said, no, you guys are misunderstanding. These verses are actually proving Unitarianism or something to that effect. And so we're now down at Genesis 16, 7 to 13, where the um, passage is talking about the angel of the Lord. We read that last week, uh, how the angel of the Lord has this dialogue with Hagar or Hagar, if you want to say her name that way. And Hagar, of course, is Abraham's mistress. And the angel of the Lord in the dialogue, as we read it, let me jump to the next tab. Um, the uh, 
there we go. The angel of the Lord is shown to be speaking in first person as God, but in third person when referring to God or talking about God in third person as well. And so the question is brought up, is the angel of the Lord a pre-incarnate Jesus? So let's look at Biblical Unitarian's answer. We left off at number six of eight parts in their answer. I'll read their answer. I'll just read down from six, seven, and eight, and then I'll begin to jump through um, resources that demonstrate the classic Trinitarian Christian perspective, um, some some uh, resources that, that deal with um, theophanies and Christophanies in general to help us understand who this angel of the Lord may or may not be, and then I'll offer some passages in support of what I believe is going on in the text. That the angel of the Lord, this is Biblical Unitarianism, uh, um, uh, paragraph number six out of eight, that the angel of the Lord seems superior to other angels is no reason to assume he is somehow part of the Trinity. Remember, their position is basically that the angel of the Lord is just that. He's an angel, he's not God, and the reason he can speak as God is because of this concept known as agency. That's where we left off last week. In the uh, as I uh, uh, kind of prep you for what we're going to be talking about. In the view, in the viewpoint of biblical Unitarianism, they borrowed this idea of agency from the rabbis, from the ancient rabbinic sources, particularly in the Jewish encyclopedia. And there, we have this idea of shaliach, or agency, where the, the um, concept is described in Jewish um, uh, uh, resources that in the Bible, you'll often find individuals who are recognized as messengers or agents of a principle, such as a king or a governor or a leader. So you have two people. You have the principle, which is the higher ranking um, person in this example, which be it either king or governor or leader or, or magistrate or whomever, or God himself, that's party A. And then you have party B, which is the agent, the messenger, the... Um, the shaliach, the apostle, the one who sent on behalf of the principle, right? So we have the king sending his agent to do his will, to do his bidding, to do his work. And so as the agent travels around the, the land of the king and speaks and gives the edicts of the king, because he is the agent of the king, he is given the permission by the king to speak not only for the king, but even as the king in first person. And this is um, the way the law of agency works. And we see demonstrations of this, uh, examples of this throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So I'm not opposed to that concept. We see examples of it in the earth today, in governments and politics and things like that. You can speak in first person as if you are the king, even though the people you're speaking to recognize that they are, you're not the king. You are the agent of the king. You're the messenger of the king, the apostle, um, you're the angel. Those those words are all intertwined in the in both the Hebrew and the Greek. The English concept of messenger kind of sums it up kind of nicely. So I'm not opposed to that concept. What the biblical Unitarian supplies by way of apologetic is that when it comes to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, just like the angel of the Lord is not God, the angel of the Lord is the messenger, right? The Hebrew um uh uh um, the Hebrew uh, malach is um angel. Um, from where we get our English word angel, um, from where we get the Greek of um, uh, angelos, which leads, to, which, which is the word angel itself, but is related to the Greek word um, um, apostolos, which is the word apostle, the word messenger. So again, this concept of messenger or agent. In the viewpoint of biblical Unitarianism, 
the angel of the Lord is not God, but because of the law of agency, sometimes the words that he uses are first person God. Like he'll say, I will bless you. I'll multiply you. Um, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring my will to pass. Um, now I know you, you believe in me. And yet it's the angel talking. And so according to biblical Unitarianism, a non-Trinitarian resource, they believe that the angel Lord can speak as God because he's the agent of God. But that doesn't prove that he is God. We Trinitarians believe not. We, we believe something entirely different. We believe, as I'm going to show, that the fact that he does speak as God gives us a glimpse into the nature of God in the sense that there's a theophany, a Christophany, or an angelophany. And no, I'm not making up that word. I think it is angelophany. I'll show you on the screen here in post. Um, the idea that um, it's an angelic messenger or a heavenly messenger who is actually a, a representative of God because it is God in 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 um, manifestation form, um, even though to us as humans it looks like an angel. So let me just read the rest of their answer. I had to prep you for all that because that's that is a central part of their argument. In fact, if you ever have a discussion as a Trinitarian with a non-Trinitarian about who Jesus is, that he is very God, one of the first things they'll tell you is that, well, Jesus isn't God, he's just a messenger of God, just like the angels of the Lord were messengers of God. Jesus is an agent of God. Therefore, all the passages that talk about Jesus creating things and Jesus doing things that God alone can do, well, that's just agency language. And so they'll just say, well, you can't really tell that um, it's God, it's really just the agent. And we're going to talk about the weakness of pushing the agency perspective to an extreme absurdity, like I think biblical Unitarians often do. So they continue, that the angel of the Lord seems superior to other angels is no reason to assume he is somehow part of the Trinity. Many scholars agree that angels differ in power and authority. The Bible mentions archangels, I'm sorry, archangels in Thessalonians and in Jude. For example, uh, they say it would not be unusual... Um, they go on to say it would not be unusual that this angel would be one with greater authority. So they're they're simply saying that they recognize that not all angels are equal, and that even though this angel of the Lord is an angel, he is a higher ranking angel when we say archangel and things like that. Um, neither is the fact that the uh, they say that the angel of the Lord can forgive sins any reason to believe that he is God. God's agents can forgive sins. See, there's their agency language. It's like their little trump card that they flash whenever they don't want to concede that the Bible is actually telling us that Jesus is very God by the things that he says and the actions that he does, etc., or that the Bible is demonstrating that um, what we're looking at is a theophany of God, an angel of the Lord, or a manifestation of very God, not just a messenger, but very God by the words and the language. Um, the the non-Trinitarian pulls out his little agency card because that conveniently helps him to um, um, refute the idea that uh, that we're looking at a, 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 comp, a God who's of complex nature or something like that. They continue, Neither is the fact that the angel of the Lord can forgive sins and reason to believe that he is God. God's agents can forgive sins. God gave Jesus the authority to forgive sins. And then he, in turn, gave the apostles the authority to forgive sins, right? And they talk about looking at Mark 2.7. And all of that's partially true, right? The fact that Jesus forgives sins, God forgives sins, Jesus forgives sins, and didn't Jesus gives us the ability to forgive sins. So the facts there are true, but the conclusions that this proves that, that Jesus isn't God, I disagree with. They continue, number seven, although it's true that the countenance of the angel 
of the Lord does occasionally struck, strike struck all in people. That's no reason to assume he's God. A careful reading of the passages where he appears shows that sometimes the people did not even realize that they were talking to an angel. And then they tell you the example, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mother, I referenced this earlier uh, last week, They she returned to her husband, Manoach, with this report. Quote, listen to what she says, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. That's Judges 13.6, right? And we know from reading the passage that it was actually an angel. It was actually the angel of the Lord in the definite sense of the article but where the Hebrew supports the angel, not rather an angel. Um, but it's the angel of the Lord uh, that shows up in different places. In, in difference to simply an angel, the angel of the Lord is a specific figure that um, plays an important part in the uh, time period of the Tanakh. Um they continue, note that angels had a rep reputation for being an awe-inspiring countenance, and the woman thought that this quote-unquote man of God did too, but she still did not believe he was an angel. When Manoach met the angel of the Lord, right, her, his, uh, her husband, uh, Samson's, um, Samson's father, when Manoach met the angel of the Lord and the two of them talked about how to raise Samson, Manoach did not discover he was an angel until he ascended to heaven in the smoke of Manoach's sacrifice. And they conclude by saying, therefore, just because someone's countenance may be awesome, uh, he's not necessarily God. Okay. Uh, and then the last point, point eight, it's also argued that Jesus is probably the angel of the Lord because those words never appear after his birth. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, with the definite article, the angel, not just an angel. And grammatically in the Hebrew, uh, Hamelach, uh, Hamelach Adonai, um, or Malach Adonai, not necessarily Ha, but Malach Adonai, uh, the construct of the Greek of the Hebrew there, because of the proper name of God being part of the, the description, Malach being the word angel, Adonai being the word, the, the Hebrew word for the tetragrammaton name of God, the YHVH of uh, uh, letters there, um, because of the, the what we call the construct, um, uh, form of that title, those two uh, nouns, Malach and Adonai, together in the contract state in the Hebrew without getting too technical, it is proper to translate it with the definite article the, even though we don't see the word ha there showing up, which is normally the way Hebrew indicates a definite article. The point I'm trying to make is that whenever the translators put this as the angel of the Lord rather than an angel of the Lord, it's based on the Hebrew wording, which is accurate. So um, that's the point I'm trying to make. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, doesn't show up after Jesus is brought into the scene in the book of Matthew and following in the, through the, uh, the Gospels. However, an angel of the Lord does show up. So let's read this. It's recorded that Jesus is probably the angel of the Lord because these words never appear after his birth. Giving the Trinitarians, we Trinitarians, the... Um, um, impression that the reason the angel of the Lord never shows up after Jesus is born is because the angel of the Lord is his pre-incarnate form, and so it wouldn't make sense to have in the same picture the angel of the Lord and Jesus in the same narrative if one was the pre-incarnate form of the other, right? That that would that would be weird. It'd be like a scene of uh, in the movie where you have Superman and Clark Kent in the same scene, right? You guys follow my little pop icon pop culture analogy there all right uh, so it seems reasonable this uh website says that this angel would appear right on through the bible 
the fact is, however, that the angel of the Lord does appear after Jesus' conception, which seems inconsistent with the premise that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. And then they give the example. The record of Jesus' birth is well known. Mary was discovered to be pregnant with Jesus before she and Joseph were married. And Joseph, who could have had her stoned to death, decided to divorce her. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and told him that the child was God's. And the word, the phrase, an angel of the Lord, is the way we originally find it in, um, in, the, in the, the gospel account here. Matthew one twenty four states, and they remind us, quote, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Notice the language shifted from an angel of the Lord to the angel of the Lord. And um, if we were to go look up um, the passage, I'm not going to do it now for you. Just take my word for it. Um, the language is accurate as is being portrayed by the Biblical Unitarian website. It first describes an angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream. And then later on in the passage, it says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord. So it switches from an angel to the angel. And so uh, biblical Unitarianism is picking up on this language of the definite article. And they're saying, aha, see, it is the angel of the Lord because the text says the angel. So here's what they, here's the conclusions they draw. Two conclusions can be drawn from this record. Firstly, or first, Jesus was already in Mary's womb when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. From this, we conclude that the angel of the Lord, they put that in quotes because that's the premise of the Trinitarian camp, that the angel of the Lord with the definite article the, right, the, the angel of the Lord, can't be in the same picture as Jesus because they are the same individual. Just one is pre-incarnate, one is uh, incarnate. Um, and of course, the biblical Unitarians disagree. So they say, well, firstly, Jesus was in Mary's womb um, when the angel Lord appeared to Joseph. And from this, they conclude that the angel Lord cannot be Jesus because Jesus was at that time in the flesh inside Mary. Second, it should be noted that in the same record, this angel is known both as an angel of the Lord and as the angel of the Lord. And this same fact can be seen in the Old Testament records. And they give you one example from 1 Kings 19 verses 5 through 7. And they continue in their in their assessment. There are many appearances of an angel of the Lord in the New Testament. Uh, reference Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 12, Acts tw uh, 12 in two locations. From this, we conclude, this is biblical Unitarianism, we conclude that it is likely that the same angel who is called both the angel of the Lord and an angel in the Old Testament still appears as an angel of the Lord after Christ's birth. In other words, this is the reason why we don't have the angel. That's that's their answer to the Trinitarian um, uh, uh, answer or uh, discussion about the fact that with the definite article, the angel never shows up again in the New Testament, with the exception of the Matthew passage here, where it does say the angel. The biblical Unitarian's answer is, um, no, it's still the same angel of the Lord. It's just the biblical writers drop into an angel. They don't use the word the, um, but it still, it, it still is the. They say it still is an, an angel of the Lord after Christ's birth. When all the evidence is carefully weighed, weighed, there's good reason to believe that the words describing the angel of the Lord are literal and that the being referred to is an angel, just as the text says. All right, that's their answer. If you want to hear the entire answer, all eight of them, in other words, 1 through 6 was last week, and uh, I'm sorry, 1 through 5 was last week, and 6 through 8 are this week. Okay, in the remaining um, 
15 minutes here, let me begin to peel back uh, the answer from a Trinitarian perspective and refute or rebut what they have to say. Um, in some cases, I'm not going to completely disagree with them because they have some leg to stand on in some uh, aspects, like I already talked about agency. What I want to do first, and this will probably run into next week as well, because I don't think I can do it in 15 minutes. I mean, I could, but I don't think it would be uh, do it justice. So it's going to stretch out to three. What I, would do, what, I would, what I want to do first is just begin to make you aware of Christian resources uh, in their answer to this particular question, who's the angel of the Lord? GodQuestions.org is one of my favorite Christian resources. Their Trinitarian belief is something I um, hold to as well. Um, I don't agree with everything they say teach on their website. Um, they have some dispensational beliefs I disagree with, uh, and they believe in a pre-trib rapture, which I also disagree with. Um, but these are minor points of disagreement. Uh, when it comes to uh, Trinitarian, which is more of a major um, point of theology that I hold dear uh, in, to, in my own personal understanding, I agree with them. Who is the angel of the Lord? They have an article. I want to read just a little bit of it. Um, they ha here's what they have to say, quote, The precise identity of the angel of the Lord is not given in the Bible. However, there are many important clues to his identity. There are Old and New Testament references to the angels of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. So they, they make us aware right away that sometimes it's definite article, sometimes it's indefinite article. It depends on which uh, story we're reading, so just need to be uh, watch that. If you have access to the original Hebrew or you're able to pull up a concordance, uh, on a on a like a, a smart device, like a computer, or smartphone, and see the original languages. It's always helpful. They go on to say it seems when the definite article the is used or the is used, it is specifying a unique being separate from other angels. Again, they're bringing into this discussion something similar to what biblical Unitarianism has to contend with, and something that I also make take note of because of the way the Bible describes and portrays these figures in the Old Testament and the New Testament using uh, definite and indefinite articles and things like that. The angel of the Lord, they go on to say, speaks as God, identifies himself with God, and exercises the responsibilities of God. And they give you several passages out of the Old Testament. In several of these appearances, those who saw the angel of the Lord feared for their lives. Why? Because they had seen the Lord. Therefore, and the word seen the Lord is in quotes. Those are the, the descriptions of either the people that experienced this figure or sometimes it's the editorial note from the writer of the book that we're reading. Like Moses may write something and then the, 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 the people that experience it have their own verbiage that's supplied as well. Therefore, Got Questions says, it is clear that in, that in, a, that in at least some instances, the angel of the Lord is a theophany or, and I, I, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Therefore, it is clear that in some instances, at least some instances, the angel of the Lord is a theophany, an appearance of God in physical form. So what they're saying is that if we take the Bible at face value, which is the, always the way that I recommend you take it, take it at face value that, that God is telling you exactly what's going on without allegorizing, spiritualizing, hypothesizing, uh, theophanizing, um, uh, you know, um, um, symbolizing and things like that. If God says that he's talking with someone, just take it at face of the value that it's God. You know, when the text says, Vayomer Adonai Elohim, Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, and God said to Moses, uh, you know, something like that, just take it at face value that it's God talking to Moses, that there are two parties involved, and that it's God is one party, and that Moses is the recipient party. God said to Moses, Vayomer 
uh, Adonai El Moshe or something like that, right? That's a that's a phrase I'm just pulling off the top of my head because it's so uh, numerously, it's so popular in, uh, in, in the Old Testament. At face value, I don't have to say, well, it's an angel talking with Moses or or it's it's a heavenly hosted being or, you know, one of the 24 elders or one of the, uh, something like that, an arch archangel or something talking with God. The text tells me who what's going on. So when there are times that it tells me that the angel of the Lord is talking and then it says God is talking, I take that as a theophany in those cases. It's an appearance of God in physical form. The manifestation of God in the appearance of an angel and the description is both angel and God because God is otherwise invisible and, and incomprehensible. He's altogether transcendent meaning in a sense that we can't um, interact with them as humans because of the stuff that we're made of can't exist in the same space with the stuff that God is made of because we will be consumed. Therefore, God God um, allows himself to be um, uh, manifested in a form that our senses can register. Our eyes see something, our ears hear something, uh, our, our mouths interact. Uh, we we speak back and forth. We dialogue with our ears here. Uh, our brain perceives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, so, in those cases, it's not it's not necessarily an angel that we're dealing with. In some of those cases, it really is God, because the text gives us that extra language to give us that impression, where it says, "Then God said," or "I saw the Lord." In those cases, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't give God that recognition that it truly is. What we might call either a Christophany or a theophany, a manifested, a manifested presence in, of God in physical form. So that's what God Questions talks about. You can go on to read their article on their website, God Questions. I'm not going to read the entire article because I want to kind of move along somewhat quickly. Turn to some more resources. Another uh, Christian resource um, from uh, Help Me with Help Me with BibleStudy.org. Kind of a clever sounding web resource, <clears throat> more of a blog resource uh, than like God questions. But they talk about who is the angel of the Lord or who is the angel of God. And in their article, they talk about it in the, the 56 occurrences of the phrase, the angel of the Lord, God, the angel of the Lord slash God, because sometimes it's the angel of God, sometimes it's the angel of the Lord. So that's how the language works. Several uh, of the instances, they say, suggest uh, that he is God in human form, and other instances where he is distinctly different from God. And so, like biblical Unitarianism, uh, we have to recognize that the Bible is sometimes demonstrating for us, using the language, that it's God, and at other times it's an angel of God or an angel of the Lord, but is speaking on God's behalf or speaking words that are reminiscent of what God said. The following passages, they say, are instances where the angel of the Lord God exhibited capabilities you see associated with God. And then they have some lists that I'm just going to quickly go through. Um, this angel made prom prophetic promises. Uh, the first one is the uh, multiply Hagar's descendants. And the point that this blogger is bringing to our attention is that these statements or um, actions that we read about in the, in the text lead us to a, a conclusion that it's God's theophany or manifestation that we're dealing with, even though the language is the angel of the Lord or something like that. This uh, um, manifestation or this angel, angelic figure, made prophetic promises that only God could make uh, come to pass. Uh, this 
person or angelic disfigure accepted worship. Um, this figure has ident identified himself with God, stopped Abraham from sacrificing a son, Isaac, and blessed him. Um, appeared in Jacob's dream, appeared to Moses, Israel's rebuke for not conquering the promised land, the selection of Gideon. This individual provides personal provision and protection for believers, provided food for Elijah, made divine appointments. Uh, see Moses and Samson delivered the nation of Israel, protection from the Egyptian pursuit, future protection of Jerusalem, a prayer of protection. This being judged human beings, um, this individual, this being judged nations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, first we have a list of instances in the Bible that would give us the conclusion that would lead us to the conclusion that we're dealing with very God Himself because of the actions and language and word that are attributed to this uh, being, this individual, this manifestation, right? But this blogger reminds us that in these following instances that we're going to read about, the angel Lord is distinctly different from God. We have Balaam's disobedience of going to the leaders of Moab. We have David's disobedience of a census. We have God's answer of King Hezekiah's prayer and judgment of King uh, Sennacherib of Assyria. We have David's prayer. We have Zechariah's call to repentance. And so they, they begin to um, peel back uh, these instances in comparison. When one surveys the New Testament, there's only one instance, and we recognize this as well, where an angel is identified with God, that's in the book of Acts, and it is not with the phrase uh, of angel of the Lord. While the phrase angel of the Lord does appear 12 times in the New Testament, all, all, and they all refer to unfallen angelic messengers of God. You have a, a slew of references out of the New Testament. This is what they're trying to remind you of to help you understand what the raw data that we're looking at, um, given the language. Uh, they remind us also the Hebrew of the angel of the Lord God is not seen in the Greek text with the appearance of Jesus Christ. And now you're asking, well, how can that be? How can the angel of the Lord not show up in the New Testament when uh, biblical Unitarianism just showed us in the book of Matthew that an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and then the angel that was speaking with him, the angel of the Lord, told him to, to go uh, here and there and everywhere. Ah, here's the reason why. Um, it's because, let me see if they deal with it. If they don't, then I'll just explain it myself. Um, okay, they don't say anything about it, so I'll just explain it to uh, explain it for you my on my own. In the passage in the book of Matthew, the context of an angel is simply repeated as the angel, meaning the angel that appeared to you in the dream. Yeah, that one, that guy, he's the one that's telling you don't go down to Egypt because they're gonna they're looking to kill the babies and blah blah blah. Instead. Um, go somewhere else or don't go don't go here and there. <clears throat> so the writer to the book of Matthew is simply using the phrase the angel, not in the same way that the angels used throughout the Old Testament in the de using the definite article the angel of the Lord. Instead, uh, what this blogger is is recognizing, and I, I agree with, that it's just a literary aspect of an angel who shows up in the text earlier and then the angels pointing back to an angel, meaning it's the same angel, rather than sometimes angel, uh, two different angels show up giving the same message, but it's two different messengers. That's all that's going on. And then let me conclude tonight with this uh, blogger's reference, and next week we'll um, turn 
to another reference, another Christian resource, this time a messianic one from uh, Tim Haig, uh, where he's going to be uh, entertaining primary questions in the forma formation of the Trinity doctrine as regards this idea of um, theophany and um, how do we explain how God uh, shows up in manifestation and yet it's God himself. We'll begin to look at that in, in this discussion about English of the Lord. Well, I'm taking a little more time on this topic because it is a foundational topic of identifying Jesus as uh, either the, pre uh, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Jesus or whether or not the angel of the Lord is merely an angel and not Jesus and how this bears relevance to whether or not Jesus himself is very God. So that's why we're taking a little longer rather than just finishing everything up in one week. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching out to two and even three weeks. This blogger concludes by saying, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord God spoke in first person as though he were God. He, uh, he had the attributes of God, yet was distinct from God. In consideration of the triune nature of God, he is God the Father. I'm sorry, is he God the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? And they give you some um, uh, references. In the book of Exodus, suggests that the angel of the Lord God cannot be God the Father, since no man can see his face and live. John 1 and 1 Timothy 6 further affirm that no one has seen God the Father. Examples such as Judges 3, Isaiah 11, Luke 4 indicate that the Holy Spirit is not visible to human beings either. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only visible person of the Trinity that human beings can see face to face and yet live. The angel of the Lord God share the angel of the Lord God share this the angel of the lord shares the similarities of being sent by god the patriarch jacob makes the very first mention of the word redeemed and associates the term with the angel within the context of redemption from the evil genesis 48 hosea 12 uh makes it clear that the patriarch jacob associated the angel with god the angel of the lord god was never seen again after the incarnation of jesus and so their conclusion is that for the above reasons, the angel of the Lord God is understood to be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and in only this instance, the angel of the Lord God is not seen as a created angel in that sense. Um, they tell you also that a theosoph the theosophony, theosophony, that's the word that I couldn't remember last week when I said um, uh, theophany, Christophany, and a fancy word that I didn't remember. Theosophany, such as the angel of the Lord God, is a visual, visual manifestation of God before the incarnation. Some theologians limit the definition to a bodily form, and others include any visible manifestations such as the burning bush, pillar of fire and cloud, and the cloud of glory. While it is not clear why God chose up a, a specific form for the theosophony, its purpose is to convey some revelation or truth about God. They got a bunch of references there. So in the end, um, this Christian author, who's, a, the, who's a, a Trinitarian like myself, makes his conclusionary statement that the angel of the Lord, in those cases where the language is has the angel speaking as God, and then... Um, uh, other indicators in the narrative uh, have the say the people interacting with this individual uh, describing him as God, saying I saw God face to face, or uh, I'll name this place the God who who saw me, or something like that. Um, you know, God rescued me, and yet there the the language of angels mentioned. This Trinitarian blogger comes to the conclusion that I do that. Those are manifestations of God and not merely an angel. Why God chose to 
uh, that specific form, like an angel, uh, we don't know exactly all the time. Otherwise, I mean, why wouldn't God just um, appear as something else? Uh, God himself can't be seen. That's the truth of the matter. God the Father can't be seen when I say God himself. Uh, God is pure spirit. So God manifests himself. We're going to find when we get to Genesis 18 that God looks like a man. He doesn't even look angelic. And, you know, J Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, Abraham looks up and sees three men. That's the way the text describes it. And yet it's clear that one of those men is the Lord himself, YHVH. And so in conclusion, as we're going to keep uh, looking at this, we'll draw this out a little bit longer uh, into a, a third week. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I can conclude it uh, in the third week. But we're going to find out that when it comes to agency, we're going to come back around to this. We're going to circle back around. When it comes to agency, God has messengers that can be sent out on his behalf to do things for him. And it is true that in some of those cases, those messengers who are not God, those messengers speak for God in such a way that it seems as if they're speaking as God in some of those cases. We need to be careful with the context. But let me just tell you up front in, in, in kind of teaser fashion, if we take the issue, the, the concept of agency to an absurd extreme to where the agency speaks so much like God that the people interacting with the agency um, think that it is God, well then, what's the purpose of the principle in the first place? Why do we even need the principle if the agent can speak on behalf of God and speak as God and do everything that God can do to the point that the people interacting with the agent lose sight of the principle in the first place. That's the danger of the agency example that um, many non-Trinitarians like to put forth in their arguments. It's almost as if they say, well, Jesus is just an agent of God. And they, they describe it as if Jesus is lesser than God because he's just an agent. But on the other hand, if Jesus can say things that God says and speak as God, well, who's to say that there isn't really even God anyway? In other words, we start getting running the risk of the danger of the oneness Pentecostal version of, of, um, of um, Revelation, where there isn't any God the Father anymore at all. There's just Jesus. Jesus is the one true God who sometimes looks like the Father, sometimes looks like the Son, sometimes looks like the Holy Spirit, depending on whatever disguise he's wearing among humans at the time. But in the end, the, the single being that we know as God, his name is Jesus. And so the Father disappears in the background altogether because of um, we just collapse everything into the name of Jesus. And so that's a danger that we want to avoid um, when we're talking about agency as well. We'll continue to look at this next week. Uh, where we're, Again, we'll pick up next week. We'll start right away with Tim Haig's uh, theology proper uh, seminary level teaching where he talks about this idea of um, how God communicates uh, his truths to us through um, manifestation and theophany and how it bears relevance to the angel of the Lord. But that'll do it for this week's version of a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And now let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you and bless you for sending your Son into the world to die a sinner's death, even though he himself was sinless. He was the perfect Lamb of God, and yet he took on my sin. He bore the price of my sin, which was death, and therefore I have been acquitted. I have been released from that condemnation, and therefore I enjoy the presence of God 
and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I can look forward to a place in, in God's heaven, a place that God has prepared for me. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son. Thank you for his perfect obedience on my behalf, because I myself could not be obedient in that aspect. I myself am not perfect, but he was. Bless you, Lord, uh, for uh, the work that you're doing uh, through your people here on earth, through the um, body of Messiah, through the um, uh, the kingdom that is present in spirit, but one day will be manifested as we see the kingdom of God come to earth. Literally, I, I hold to a literal kingdom of God that will descend out to planet earth. Thank you, Lord, for these promises that are true. Thank you for preserving your words and giving us a blueprint for living, a model that we can uh, plat pattern our lives after, namely, of course, Yeshua, but also the words of the of the scriptures. The very Bible itself is our blueprint. It's our way in which we walk out that which is ours by faith. We don't walk it by, by our own strength. We walk out your commandments by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, you bless us and you continue to protect us and raise us up and strengthen us as witnesses, uh, as ambassadors um, uh, in the earth uh, for your kingdom. So continue to protect us as we go along, uh, continue to help us to forgive one another. None of us is perfect. We all need forgiveness. We all need uh, the strength of the Lord. But give us the joy of the Lord because the, the days are so becoming more and more increasingly confusing and dark and um, and and uh, troubling. And um, it's going to only increase as we, as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Yeshua uh, to planet Earth. So thank you, Lord, for uh, preserving us. Bring us back next week, uh, ready to study once again. We'll give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. Oh,